0: following audio is from a sermon series called rebuilding the ruins the story of ezra and nehemiah begin with the people of god in babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness the god of heaven who is faithful to his promises then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins for more information about sacred city moline please visit scmoline.com Like I said, this new series um, through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're calling it uh, Rebuilding the Ruins. Um, We are spending time in an Old Testament book. And I think one of the things that, unfortunately, many Christians, at least a a percentage of Christians, think that there's no place for the Old Testament in the church, which is just foolishness. Um, The Old Testament, without the Old Testament, none of the New Testament makes sense to us. Uh, the The Old Testament hasn't gone. Jesus says that not one dot or iota of the law, the Torah, the 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 the, the word of the Lord that had come from that point uh, previous. Will not fade away. And so here we are, rally around these Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, I had a pastor friend ask me, now, like earlier, like, I guess a couple months ago, like what, what our plans were for 2022, what series we're doing. I told him Ezra and Nehemiah, and he jokingly asked me, So, does that mean that you are uh, going to launch a building campaign this year? Because that's typically what happens. It gets sort of this, these, these books of the Bible get retooled and purposed for some sort of logistical launch pad to get people to give to uh, build a new building or a new wing or something like that um, because of the theme that we'll see here of the rebuilding. We'll see first the rebuilding of the temple and then later on the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, specifically the walls of Jerusalem. But I assure you we are not launching any building campaigns this year, at least I I can't foresee any that we are, Um, at least not in the brick and mortar sense. However, building has been what we have been about since day one of Sacred City Church. We've been planted, we started this church in order to build a type of community, a worshiping community that has a sort of potency that can transform the city and beyond, And this is why Ezra and Nehemiah, which were initially one book here in our Bibles, they're they're two separate books of the Bible, but initially in the Hebrew Bible, they were all lumped together as one book. Um, This is why Ezra and Nehemiah are so important and so relevant for us today. The narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah is a picture of what we want to see happen in the Quad Cities, that God would establish a, a worshiping community, people who are devoted to the word of God, people who are committed to renewing the city. And we see this here through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, really through three movements. There's three key characters throughout each uh, movement of, of Ezra and Nehemiah. First, we have Zerubbabel, who's, who we're going to see through in chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra, who is responsible for rebuilding the temple. He's sort of the visionary, the leader of that, seeing to it that it gets accomplished Then later on in Ezra, chapters uh, 7 through the end of Ezra, we have Ezra who's coming to reestablish the prominence of the word of God among the worshiping community. He's a teacher of the law of the Torah. And so he reestablishes being a people of the word, which is fits, fitting for what our intent for this year is to be to become more so people of the word. And then later on, we move into Nehemiah, where Nehemiah comes to, to go from the center place of, of rebuilding um, the temple, the altar, the, the community of worship, and that sort of uh, spreads out throughout the whole city to the point where they're rebuilding the walls. It gives this idea of this culture that sort of closed off, there, there's some logistical things of why they rebuild a the wall, but to have this culture that is encapsulated, and that's The center of this community is the temple and the worship of God. Now, all of this happens from Zerubbabel to Ezra to Nehemiah, all of these building projects, all of these tasks that God's called these men to sort of move forward in uh, the community, the people of God, that's happening while they face opposition. Now, you might think that when God calls us to a mission, that it's just like easy sailing. We just sort of cruise right through it, but, but what we see that oftentimes when we're actually, I, I would almost say all the time, that we're called to be faithful to God, we will face opposition just like these three men did here throughout this, this story. And so like Ezra and Nehemiah, we desire to have this community, a worshiping community that transforms the city. Now, what we're going to do today is that we're going to start to look at how this, this story begins, um, so if you will grab your Bible, hopefully you, you brought in your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, we gave you a Bible day. If you still don't like that journal Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. And if you're really lazy, there's going to be words up on the screen. You can follow with me. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And I, I would encourage you if that, for this specific part, have, have your real Bible out because there's going to be something really cool here. I'll show you in a second. Ready? Here we go. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and so put it in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, and, and every time you see that Lord, the word Lord that's capitalized L-O-R-D is saying Yahweh, that's the, the God of the people of Israel, um, the Lord... Where was I at? The Lord, the God of heaven, he gave me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. Now, this is where you're going to see something cool. Flip back one page in your Bible, all right? You'll land in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and in verses 22 through 23, the very last paragraph there, Listen close. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he might put a procl- proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea- Judah. Whoever is, among, uh, whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. You see the similarities there in those Two passages. It's almost identical, and that helps us. It sort of leads us into this, and why many scholars say that the authors, uh, the author of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, though they rely upon the, the journals and the writings and the historicity of what's going on uh, of those first-person accounts, it's very likely that the editor of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is the chronicler, the one who wrote First and Second Chronicles. Um, so how this work, like I said, Ezra, well, you go Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, all keep these journals. It was a common thing that happened back, back in the day. They'd keep some sort of uh, documentation of what was going on, what they experienced, what they saw, and then this chronicler took those records, compiled them, and edited them in order to create uh, a, a very cohesive story narrative that would, form and in, uh, that would inform and shape the people of Israel for generations. Now, if you read through 1 and Second Chronicles, one big thing that you'll notice very quickly is the chronicler is concerned about history, and we should be too. As, as Christians, we should love history because history is a ledger of God's grace and faithfulness throughout all time and space. And one of the things that I think it's easy to be tempted into thinking is that when we read the Bible, when we read this Bible stuff that's going on that's set out in the ancient days, we tend to think, almost by default, at least I I know I do this, is that it happens in kind of a vacuum. That the Bible stuff is detached from the real world happening. So when you go back and you, you maybe, and in, in you, you had a world history course back in school that talked about the, the kings of Egypt and Persia and, and Greece and all, it's sort of detached, it's sort of separate. it's its own little fantasy world almost from the rest of the world happenings. But we as Christians ought to have confidence in the reality that what we read in scriptures, the, the, histor- is, the historical accounts that we see in scriptures are in line with what's happening in the world. And sometimes uh, it's, even, it's even more accurate than other depictions of what's happened in history. Because one of the things that you know that, that whoever wins gets to write the history books and so a lot of those, those, the history accounts get, get, well, whitewashed by whoever the, the victor is, and so you lose some of the authenticity. And one of the things the Bible is known for and the Jewish people in general are known for is keeping an accurate account of what actually happened without, without having any sort of bias to, to make themselves look good. They're, they're pretty good at, you know, telling it how it is. And so we see here in this story, what we're reading about in Ezra and Nehemiah is real people in a real place, at a real time. In fact, verse 1 opens that up. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, it's giving us this context. It's saying here, we know this, the Persian Empire was where modern-day Iran is. So think of that, like Middle East, Iran, that's where the kingdom of Persia was, and the time domain, we're talking 538 B.C., roughly. So here we are, 538 B.C., this starts off here. Now, why, this, this is a question I want to ask is, how did Cyrus, king of Persia, get injected into the story of God's people? Like, where did he come from? What, what's the significance of this? So you got to buckle up with me here. We, we've got some history to cover. If you're a history buff, you're going to like this, I think. If you're not, well, too bad. We're going back, we're going way back, and by way back, I mean to the foundations of the world. In the beginning, God created created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1, we open up and we see this uncreated creator speaking the cosmos into existence. And he says it's good. He creates man and says, well, first he says it's it's not good that man be alone. So he creates a a woman helper for Adam to fulfill the the, uh, cultural mandate that he he gave them to fill the earth and subdue it, to exercise dominion, to cultivate, and to bring about the flourishing of the world. So he says it's not good man's alone, but then he gives woman. He says it's very good, and God rests on the seventh day. Now, it doesn't take long where very good goes to not so good at all. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the curse. The fall comes, where Adam and Eve are are, are deceived. They're tempted into sin. Um, The serpent slithers his way into the Garden of Eden, and all creation sort of unravels. All of the goodness is now compromised. There's a futility in life. Yet in that interaction where God curses the serpent, he says, you're going to slither about about for the rest of your life on your belly. There's going to be enmity between uh, the woman and her seed and and you, the enemy, the, the deceiver, he makes this promise to Adam and Eve that one day, from the, the seed of the woman, there will be the snake crusher who crushes the head of the serpent. And so there we see this initial, there's the, the, the initial promise that there's, a, there's good news coming back. So, it was good. It was very good. Things started falling apart, and now there's a promise that one day things will trend back in a good direction. And, and time progresses. I don't have time to talk about everything because you got, you, got, uh, you got Babel, which is interesting for this passage, which is a city of rebellion of God where, where people take the creative mandate, the cultural mandate, and say we're going to do it our own way. It's not about God and his glory filling the earth like, like, the, uh, like water covers the seas. It's going to be our, our glory. Look at how good. Look at how, how much we can accomplish. That's the whole city of Babel. And then Noah, and so on and so forth. Then we get to Abraham, uh, who God chooses out of a land of pagans. Um, God calls Abraham to himself say, I I have a promise for you, Abraham. At At this point, his name is Abram, but I'm going to promise you to bless you so that you would be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you prosperous. I'm going to make your lineage uh, expand so that your children will outnumber the stars in the sky, that your children will outnumber the grains of sand that litter the beaches of our of our world. So mighty, so vast, so big. And so God gives Abraham this, this promise, and, and with time, it sort of progresses. Now, throughout Abraham's time, they never have that land. They never arrive at that promised land spot and really put down roots. But what we do see throughout the story of Abraham is that he begins to multiply his family. And the irony of this is that when when God makes his promise with, with Abraham, he's pretty old. He's I think he's a, about 100 years old when by the time his first son is born, um, his his wife Sarah, she's 90 years old. So God is working against what you would expect. Um, And and what happens is God multiplies his people, but eventually they find themselves, they go into Egypt in in sort of promising scenario, but eventually that promising scenario gets warped and twisted and they find themselves oppressed and enslaved in Egypt under the the, the cruel rule of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And for 40 years, uh, the people of Israel are suffering. They're being oppressed, being treated very cruelly. And God calls Moses to lead his people out of slavery. And, and by God's power through Moses, the signs and wonders and, and, and the plagues and all this stuff, God makes good on his promises to, to bring his people out of slavery. And he delivers them. Uh, well, he's bringing them to the promised land. Before they get there, they're spending years in the wilderness. But while they're in the wilderness, God is with them. There's a a pillar of of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night. God is clearly among his people, leading them throughout the wilderness. And and in that time, God gives his people at Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments. Really important that God gives his people. He doesn't free them and say, no, go do what you want. God frees his people and say, "Here here are my commandments. Here are my laws that are meant to maintain and protect human flourishing. Go do them. Honor me while you do that. And so God gives them the Ten Commandments, and then God gives them blueprints for building this tabernacle, the place where God will dwell with his people and sort of set up camp among his people as they're journe- journeying through the wilderness. And eventually, Moses dies. He doesn't get to bring God's people into it, uh, to the promised land, but Joshua, his prote- uh, predecessor, what is, what's that word? Successor, oh, thank you. Uh, he brings the people into, I appreciate the crowd help, uh, he brings them into the promised land. And not without, not without challenges, of course, But because there, there are people occupying this place, and God gives them the promised land, and eventually, through these little wars and stuff, they sort of set up this kingdom of Israel. All the 12 tribes of, of, of Israel, of, of Jacob, get their own designated land and spot, and so we start to see the kingdom of Israel be established. Are you with me so far? Okay, so now we've got this kingdom, and for a long time, God allows his kingdom basically it's a theocracy. It's ruled by God, and God uh, appoints men and women to be judges to rule over uh, his people and to, to make judgments about how things should be, and eventually they start asking for a human king. All the other nations have a king. We want a human king too, and God complies in some way. He, he sort of relents to their request, and he gives them a king that we know as King Saul, the first king of Israel. And, and King Saul kind of starts out good, but, but eventually he, he drops off quick. It's sort of a rough start for this this, the beginning of the kingdom of Israel in, this, this, the, in regards to their first king. And from Saul, God then raised up King, king David, who we're told is a, is a man after God's own heart. There's something about him, this, this mighty little guy that seemingly didn't have any visual appeal to him. That uh, In fact, w- when Samuel goes to anoint this new king of Israel, he looks at David he's like, Are you sure this is the right guy? Do I got the right guy? And he's anointed, and he becomes king. And for 40 years, King David rules. And, and with that, God promises that David's kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom, that there would be an eternal kingdom, that from that point on, God's people, God's kingdom would preserve, be preserved and move on into, well, what would, what would become known as a new heavens and new earth. David, like men do, goes on and dies. His son Solomon takes the reins, and Solomon is known as the wisest king. Aside from Jesus, the wisest king to ever, or the wisest man to ever walk the earth, um, and he ruled for forty years. And David and Solomon were generally good kings. They all had some spotty stuff in their past that we can dig up if we wanted to, but generally they are good kings. They led the people in the way of the Lord, and they flourished. And one of the things that Solomon did that was good was he built the temple that, the, that was the, the, the blueprints were given to David. He built that temple that God had instructed them to build. And he, he built up this permanent dwelling place for God, which was the central part. It was a centerpiece of the Jewish people, of the people of Israel. Everything that mattered happened in the temple. And after Solomon, things go downhill. Real quick, actually. Um, Solomon's son then takes a throne after Solomon passes away, and he starts to do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. He, he, he actually o- operates in such a foolish way that he divides the kingdom of Israel into two quadrants. There's a northern kingdom, which is known as Israel. There's a southern kingdom, which is known as Judah. There's some division. There's some hostility even among God's people, and from that point on, we have... Every once in a while you get a good king, but mostly, for the most part, this is line of idolatrous and faithful kings that are ruling the people of Israel that, because of their foolishness, because of their idol worship, uh, they bring about upon themselves war, hostility, famine, captivity. It's not a good deal. And, and, and we see things really go downhill when Israel, the northern kingdom, gets sieged by Assyria, which is now um, southeastern Turkey or northern Iraq, sort of right there on, on the border. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel gets ransacked, people taken away. In fact, it's called the 10 Lost Tribes of Israel. They, they basically vanish from the face of the earth. They get dispersed, they're spread out, their, their identity is wiped away, basically no more. And, and while they get wiped away, the, the southern kingdom of Judah... Stay standing until about 598 BC, which is when they fall to Babylon, which is now modern day Iran. Okay, so again, real times, real people, real places. And we can see of, of this telling of the fall of, of, um, of Judah, the fall of Jerusalem. The city is destroyed. 2 Kings 24 and 25 speak of this, the destruction that happened. Uh, 2 Chronicles 36 talk about just how the whole city of Jerusalem was ransacked, things were burned down, the, the temple was messed up, uh, the, completely destroyed, everything plundered. Um, the mighty men of valor, um, we're told, get exiled away. The officials, the, the leaders of, of Jerusalem get taken away to Babylon. The craftsmen, the smiths, the, those who have skilled uh, positions, they get taken away. So it's like the, the brightest, the most, most you know gifted leaders, all of those people that were in Jerusalem seen to that society now get swept away. And let me show you, I've got a map here that shows, just give you an idea of how far they go. So Jerusalem is there, and they get exiled all the way to Babylon. That's a long way to go on foot. And they're, as they go, they're carrying with them all of the plunders that are getting, the, the gold, the silver, the, the, the wares, the costly goods, all of that stuff, they're carrying with them. And they go on this 500-plus-mile journey on foot into Babylon while the weak and the seemingly unimportant people are left behind to sort of just figure it out back in Jerusalem. Now, this is devastating. This is not the up and to the right trajectory that you think God's people uh, would have if, if they are, in fact, God's people. But this whole thing didn't come out of nowhere. Jeremiah warned his, God's people about what would happen if they persisted in their unfaithfulness. In fact, that's the whole reason why this, this came about in the first place. Because God's people forsake, forsook the ways of God. They stopped worshiping him rightly. They, they did not care for or revere the word of God. They were going through the motions. They were worshiping idols, the other pagan gods that got imported into their midst and doing evil deeds. Jeremiah 25 verses 4 through 9 speak of this. Um, it says... Jeremiah's prophesying, You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent you, all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you, given to you, and your fathers from of old. Again, here here's some history lesson for you, and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, then I will do you no harm. So here's this idea, like, if you stop doing what you're doing, I'm not going to do you harm, yet you have not listened to me, verse 7 says, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. God is basically saying, you're doing this to yourself. You haven't listened to me. You're, you, you've, you've ignored my ways. You've gone after foreign gods, idol worship, pagan deeds, evil work. And now my judgment is coming to you, and you're being swept away to Babylon. And so for nearly 50 years, the people of Judah are in exile. And while they're in exile, it, it, not only is there this strenuous journey back there, But living in Babylonian exile is like living in limbo. Like you don't really have a place. I don't know if you've ever been on vacation, maybe a longer vacation, or you've just been away for a while, and and you're like, you can feel by like day, for me it's like day three, but like maybe it's a little bit longer, day seven, day eight, you get into it, and you're like, man, I'm just ready to be home. Everything feels out of whack, discombobulated, my schedule's off, I, I don't really know how to, you know, that's what they're feeling like for 50 years, just out of whack, but not only is there this like natural displacement thing that's going on, what they're experiencing is a, a severe loss of identity. The, the thing that makes them distinctive, the thing that makes them the people of God, sort of is being, has been, yanked out from underneath of them. This great nation that was promised to Abraham, this great and mighty nation, is now in shambles. The only people that are residing in, in that land now are the weak and the seemingly unimportant. You think politically speaking, how, how confused and disorienting it is. When David was, was promised this, this uh, everlasting kingdom, now there's no kingdom. Now there's no king. They're under somebody else's leadership. On top of that, they lose their homeland, which is the promised land that God says that this will be your, as what we see here in Jeremiah 25, this will be your dwelling place. This will be your land for now and for the future, for, for forever. And now they don't have that. They're exported 500 miles away. And, and the real kicker of this that I've, I don't think that we quite understand is, is that because the temple has been destroyed, they cannot worship properly. All of the commands that God has given in regard to sacrifices and the order and customs of worship, they cannot carry through with that because they've been displaced geographically and that the temple, the dwelling place of God, the Holy of Holies, has been defiled. The temple's destroyed, they can't worship, and now they're in this new pagan land which is steeped in idolatry. Like the way of the world is just, there is no other way. It's just the way of the world. That's what it is. There's no following God. It's the way of the world. Do what's, you do what seems right in your own eyes. And so here, the people of Israel for 50 years are feeling as if God has abandoned them, that God has turned on them, that he's forsaken them and left them high and dry. And it seems silly when you see what they've gone through. The way that we can echo that in our life circumstances when when things may not be going right and just come to the conclusion of God's just giving me payback right now. That's what he's doing. He's just a vengeful and vindictive. And if if we heed anything from this narrative of how we see them go into exile, it has been because of idolatry, it's the false worship of false gods there's something to be said about that. I, I, don't, I, don't, want to, I don't want to smash uh, or, or put my heel upon those who are, are legitimately suffering um, righteously. But a lot of times, when we find ourselves in a place of adversity, when we find ourselves in, in a place of contempt, it could easily be because there is unrepentant sin in our lives. And that has been the, the warning of the prophet Jeremiah Now, while they're feeling that way, the reality is that God did not forsake his his people. God didn't. Now, what's a biblical way to see what's going on here as they're shipped off in in Babylonian exile? This is God's discipline. God disciplines his children, those whom he loves. And God is is giving them a a 50-year-long spanking. (laughs) You want to do it this way? It's not going to go well for you. God does not forsake his people, though he disciplines them, and and we know that he does not forsake them because in this time that they're in exile, he makes two very important promises that will come to uh, uh, fruition after 70 years. In Jeremiah chapter 25, the first promise that God makes to his people while they're in exile is that God will punish Babylon. So their captors, the one who has swept them off, the ones who have made life hard for them, God will give them back what they issued out. There will be uh, repercussions. And we see that come to fruition here in, in the year 539 BC, where the, the, the nation of, of, of Babylon falls to the Persian Empire. King Cyrus comes and defeats them. And so that's the end Of an era for them. So God punishes Babylon, and secondly, the big promise is that God will bring his people back to their homeland and he will restore them. Now I want to show you this because this is part of, there's a couple different places where at the beginning of verse one where it's referencing the prophecy of Jeremiah that 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 uh, the author, the chronicler, is referring to here, But, but this is certainly one of them, the promise that God has made in verse 10 of Jeremiah 29, and this might sound familiar as we move into it. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God says, I'm bringing you home. And now... This is where we begin our story in Ezra chapter 1. God is making this homecoming campaign with his people. Now history shows us here, if you want to, if you want to see the ledger of God's grace and faithfulness throughout this, Israel was a relatively small and insignificant power. I mean, they, they had a heyday back in the days of, of David and Solomon, about 100 years of really prosperous times but after that, they became pretty insignificant. They, they were unstable within themselves, which pre- prevented them from becoming a world power. Now, in the midst of this, there are, are all other kinds of world powers that arise. You've got, the, you got you'll have, uh, the Babylonians, you've got the Assyrians, you've got the Persians, you've got the Greek who will come, all of these world powers that sort of rise up. And what they do, typically, is they leave a, a wake of destruction behind them. They come, they plunder, there's usually a lot of death, slavery, exile. That culture is devastated no more. But here we see God's faithfulness in preserving this small nation of Israel, even if it is just a remnant of it. This one little people group is kept. And now God is making good on his promises of Jeremiah 21, and he's bringing them home. Now, this is what King Cyrus' proclamation is about in verses one through three, right? Um, we see this. He, I, I, he's charged me to build a house for him in Jerusalem, which is in Jude- Judah. So again, that map shows all those people are going back. You want to rebuild the house of the Lord, the God who is in Jerusalem. But why, like, what are the motives of King Cyrus here? Because I think one of the things that we do when we come to the Bible is, is we start to make these questions of, is this a good guy or is this a bad guy? And, well, he did a couple of good things or so he must be a good guy. Well, I don't think that's the case necessarily for King Cyrus. He's definitely a king of a pagan society. There's no clear evidence that he has actually made some sort of profession of faith to follow the God of heaven, which he refers to here, though he does acknowledge that it is this God who gives him all of the kingdoms of the earth that's charged him to build a house. What's happening here is actually a political move. Because this is happening across many different nations. It's not just the nation of Israel that that this... Cyrus gives an edict to go and to rebuild these houses of worship. It's a political move to maintain uh, the happiness among his subjects, so he can continue on on the next conquest. And there, there's historical documentations of, of this very same edict being given to different nations. So it's not like okay, he's found he loves Jesus now, and then he's going. No, that's not actually the case. But but what this shows us here is that God is the one who is actually behind this. Even though that Cyrus is the one who makes the proclamation, verse 1 tells us that it is the God of heaven who stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, this is fascinating. To think that God can take the ulterior motives of a pagan guy and purpose them and tool them for the sake of fulfilling his promises. That's the kind of might, that's the kind of sovereignty, that's the kind of power the God of heaven has he's in heaven and he does all that he pleases and he can use pagan wicked men to accomplish those goals so here we see it's not because of this the story is not like oh yay thank goodness for king cyrus it's thank goodness for the god of heaven who stirs up the heart of king cyrus to make this come about the whole reason why any of this happens in ezra and nehemiah is because god is initiating god is stirring up the heart of men God has orchestrated all of this. This is not not a consequence or a happy byproduct. This is God behind history. God stirs up King Cyrus and one of the things that we see is that actually, it's a quite favorable disposition that Cyrus has towards God's people. It wasn't like, hey, you guys need to just get out of my sight, move along, You're, you're basically a leech to our society, go do your own thing. What we see is that the way that God stirred up King Cyrus's heart is quite favorable. So just take a look here with me uh, of all of the things that Cyrus provides as he's stirred up by God and gives to Judah. First, the first thing that's important to note in verse 2, King Cyrus gives them a bit, a vision. Go rebuild the temple. Go rebuild the house of worship, the dwelling place of God. He says that God is in Judah. God is in Jerusalem. That is the place where the God of heaven dwells is here in that temple. Go rebuild that thing that lies in, in, in rubble and ruin. Now, I, I can hardly function right when I'm not able to be with you guys here on a Sunday morning. Like, when I, when I miss out on this corporate um, worship that we have together, my whole next week is off. Like, this is like a reorienting time. This is like a time for me personally where the center of the universe, my cent- where, where my center and the center of the universe sort of realign. Now, I can't imagine what 50 years of missing worship would be like for the people of Israel. Fifty years of not being able to offer sacrifices in the temple as God has commanded them to do. Fifty years of wondering, man, are we on outs with God? Are, are we cool with God right now? Has, has my sin been accounted for? Can I go about my day without wondering if God's going to drop the hammer of, of his wrath, his, his judgment upon me? Like That is sort of like the dark cloud that's looming over his people here as they're not able to perform the sacrifices in order to appease, to appease God and to atone for their sin. A sidebar here. Thankfully, Christians never have to feel that way. If you're a Christian, there should never be a doubt if you are on ounce with God because of Jesus. <laughs> See, it's interesting what, where the temple was like the spot where worship happened. Jesus, when he's talking to the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well, he says this in, in uh, verse 21 of, of chapter four. This is of John's gospel. He says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain, which was a sacred mountain, is where, where this, uh, Jacob's well was dug. He says, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, which is where the temple is, will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worship, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so what Jesus is doing here in this moment is he's, taking down the geographical complications of worshiping God rightly. It's not going to happen here on this mountain. It's not going to happen there in the top temple. It's going to happen everywhere. Anywhere his people are in spirit and in truth, there is worship happening. And this is happening because Jesus is the true and better temple. Later on in Jesus' ministry in John 2, or earlier, I guess, if you go back to, to John chapter 2, Jesus says to his disciples, he says to those who are listening, listen, you're going to destroy the temple, and in three days, I will rebuild it. What he's talking about is his body. He himself is the temple, that he would be crucified, died, and buried, and in three days, God would raise him from the dead, thus initiating a new era where Jesus is the temple. And, and at 70 BC, roughly, the temple that was standing at the time actually does get toppled, right? When Jesus crucified, the curtain gets ripped in two. The, Right now, Jewish people can't go and worship as they ought to. But Christians can, because we worship in spirit and in truth. And the other part of that is the sacrifice bit, right? Going to offer sacrifice. Well, Jesus is a true and better sacrifice. The the one, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the once and for all sacrifice. So there's no need for us to go back to the altar. All we must do is repent and believe and receive the good news that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That by his blood, we are forgiven. By his blood, we are made right. And then there's another layer of this, where then we become the dwelling place of Christ. The spirit of God now dwells in us. That, Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that your body is the temple of God? The reason why Christians don't need to feel like that is because Jesus is ever present. Worship happens wherever we are. In fact, our whole life should be that of worship. So the confidence that we have as Christians is not that, not in, in, in the ritual. It's not in the ability to follow through on all the commands. The, the reason why we have confidence is because Jesus did, by his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. We know that we've been made right with God. So that's one advantage of being a Christian, I suppose. So let me resume here and give you an account for the gifts, the grace that the King Cyrus gave. So first, we have the vision. Second, Cyrus gives the people manpower. He says, whoever is among you, all of God's people. He says that uh, in verse 3. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. Now, typically, rulers like to keep a tight grip on things. And here we see him relinquishing a little bit of power and saying, if you want to go, you can go. And he says, let God be with you. Go be with your God who is in Jerusalem. So there's almost like this blessing of, hey, if you want to go, you want to go. And in verse 5, we see who went. We see the first to kind of respond to this. Verse 5 says, Then rose up the heads of the the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, so those last two tribes, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We see, if you go back to the kind of guys that were swept off in exile, they were skilled men. They were mighty men of valor. And now they're being sent back. Now, these are men that you can build a society with. These are good men. These are godly men. These are courageous men. And now they're being sent back. Now, you might think that everybody who's in Babylonian exile would be eager to just jump out of their seat and run back to Jerusalem, to the place of the father's, but that's not really the case. See, what happens when you get immersed in a pagan society is you start to conform to the pattern of the world. You, you get comfy there. You adopt this pagan. there's no longer a, 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 a singular devotion to the Lord. You, you are, you're, you're distracted by other pagan gods. And there they are in Babylon, which is the Middle Eastern equivalent of Las Vegas, where there's plenty of food and buffets. There's plenty of money there. Of entertainment. There's all kinds of sensuality and any kind of God that you would want to worship that would serve your own agenda. So there are plenty of reasons why your average Joe who's in Babylonian exile would want to stay behind. There's a comfort level there. But once again, we see in order to accomplish God's purposes, God moves, God stirs up the hearts of men Verse five, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild. So not only do you see the dudes who you'd expect to go, those mighty men of valor who are ready to go back and reclaim what's theirs, but you see a whole slew of other people coming too, and we'll see a bunch of people listed out in chapter two of next week, which if you thought we had some good names this week, just wait till next week. So good luck to whoever's reading scripture. What we see, again, God moves, God stirs up, people respond. And the third thing that we see sort of a grace that God gives through King Cyrus are the provisions that he offers. Verse 4 says this, And let each survivor, so those who are staying behind or those who have, who have made it through the exile, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And he goes on in, in verse 6 and says it actually happens. And all who are about all who were about them, so all who were about the vision aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely given. So here we see King Cyrus has seen to it that this vision not only has a man, manpower, but it's getting bankrolled. The, the provisions that are needed to carry out this big vision are actually at their disposal. And so we see explicitly God stirring up King Cyrus to make this edict. We see God explicitly stirring up the hearts of men to actually return home. And now, uh, maybe more indirectly, we see God stirring up the hearts of people who aren't going to fund the mission, to fund this rebuild project. And they give silver and gold and building materials and tools and wares and beasts and this free will offering because what they're compelled by is this vision this vision that that we are set out to rebuild this beautiful and glorious temple, one that hopefully matches Solomon's temple in all its splendor, which there's a little bit of letdown later on. But they have the resources they need. Now, on top of that, which is interesting, not only do they have this raw material, but all of the furniture and vessels that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, who was responsible for capturing uh, the people of Judah, that they sort of took away with them when they plundered them. They took all of the, all of the vessels, all of the furniture, all of the little things. And what they do, what they would do in those days is, since I beat you, now I'm going to take your God and I'm going to put your God's stuff in my God's temple as a sign that now your God serves my God. And what happens is King Cyrus says, listen, you can have all of that stuff back. And it gives us it, like 5,400 5, items from the temple that are given back. And so we see this shift happening where the people of Israel, there's an aim, this, this reclaim of worship to the God of heaven. Every step of the way, we see God's sovereignty. Every step of the way, in, in the origins of the story, we see God at work and moving and acting before any human follow-through occurs. He gives a mission, he gives the people, he gives the funds. And we see his sovereignty on display among his people. We see his sovereignty on display over pagans. We see his sovereignty on display on those who are faithful to him. And right here, there's one thing that we got to see here is that God is fulfilling his promises. Everything that God has said, he will do. That is why the very first verse says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a fulfillment of promise that God is rebuilding the ruins. And what I want to suggest today is that this isn't history in the sense where it's it happened and it's a closed chapter and that is done. God is rebuilding today. That's what, that's what we're about. Like when you boil it down to it, that's what Sacred City is about, is rebuilding. And we're not doing it through the kind edict of King Cyrus. We're doing it through the faithful and kind Authority of King Jesus. See, while, while, while King Cyrus was favorable and and he had this disposition that we were we as Christians and people who are come from the heritage of Abraham can appreciate, King Jesus is the true and better King. Jesus is a King that does not need to be stirred up to do the will of God, because since eternity Jesus has been eager to do the will of God and he does it perfectly. His arm doesn't need to be twisted. There's no ulterior motives in listening to the command of God. Jesus does it. Jesus is the true and better king in that he gives us a mission that's not just brick and mortar. A mission to preach the good news of the gospel that because of him, we can be in right standing with the God of creation, the God who's in heaven. He gives us the mission in, in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Jesus gives us the manpower. He tells his disciples, listen, first he says, the harvest harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. But listen, pray for laborers. There's a harvest out there of people. There's a lot of manpower at God's disposal, and God is calling all kinds of people to himself from different walks of life, from different socioeconomic status, from different cultures, from different ethnicities, from different positions. God calls anybody and everybody to himself who will listen, who will hear the call. That is a call to faith. By trusting in Jesus, to see what he has done, see that he is the good king. He's the faithful one. He is the true and better temple, sacrifice, king, all of it. That's roped right into the Great Commission of go and make disciples of all nations. It's all kinds of people. There's all kinds of manpower at at Jesus' fingertips. I think this room demonstrates that. And then Jesus provides the provisions, everything that you need to carry out the mission, everything that we need to rebuild a community of worship that is so potent that transforms a city. Everything that we need for life and mission is given to us. Second Peter chapter 1, verse he says, His divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. See, Jesus is building. He's calling us to build with him, to rebuild from the ruins. By his sovereignty and provision, God is at work right here and right now. That's what this is about. We're not just going through the motions. We're not just doing church to do church. We are interested in rebuilding a community that is so committed to God that it spills out in every nook and cranny. And God is stirring up people. God is not God has not thrown his hands up in the air and said, okay, well, you can sort it out. God is stirring up his people first in saving us by grace through faith. See, if God did not stir you up, you would have no interest in coming to him. Jesus would not be beautiful to you at all. You would not be compelled by it. But if you are, if you have that inclination where you're moving towards Jesus, God is stirring up your heart. You didn't generate that. That is from God. We see God stirring us up now in the sense that there's a mission. There's something to do. There's rebuilding. There's work to be done. He doesn't just leave us to be on our own. See, the whole thing about King Cyrus is, hey, go back to Jerusalem where the God of heaven is, where he dwells. Part of the Great Commission is that Jesus says, hey, behold, I'm with you for the, till the end of the age. As we do this, we're not doing it alone. Jesus is going with us every single step of the way. He's the one that's stirring up. He's present with us here to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to to help us become a community that worships him in spirit and in truth here and everywhere. And God is providing everything. Jesus is providing everything that we need to get the job done. The church does not operate from a deficit. <laughs> like maybe our spreadsheet shows, you know, the margins are thin, but the cattle on a thousand hills belong to God. Every dollar that's in circulation belongs to God. And He can stir up men and women to fund the mission, to, to make the provisions that are needed, to carry things out, to carry out the will of God. And so with faith. As the people of God, be stirred. Allow yourself to be stirred. My question is, will you respond to the stirring of God? Will you let God's work in your life, that that prompting really set your life in motion to be about something that's more than your own personal happiness, To, to make it about the glory of God across the world and in our city and in our homes, Will you respond to the stern of God? Will you answer the call? And if you do, if you want to, it all begins with worship. It all begins with seeing God for who he is, to see Jesus as your king and you belonging to him as his servant to carry out the mission, to make much of God because he's done so much for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that you are the God whose word is eternal in that even as we stand here and read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, 2,600 years from the time it actually occurred, there's so much to glean. I pray, Father, that you would stir us up. We can't do this. We cannot manufacture that umption, that, that, that drive in our own hearts. It comes from you. And so would you bring that about and would you bring us to life and care, help us to care about your mission, your vision, what it is you want to do and helping us to develop as a worshiping community that's so potent that it can transform the city. Would that be the testimony of, of this church for this generation and the next generation and generations to come? For our good, for your glory. We love you, King Jesus. Thank you for your kindness. And it's in your name we pray.